The year is 1197 and the long night has begun. When darkness falls, monsters walk the streets and alleys of the cities, congregating to plot and scheme. Fearing fire, the cross, and the lupines of the wild, the elder Cainites nonetheless seek to guide and control human civilization through centuries-old plots, while the younger vampires scrabble for power, influence, and prestige. Welcome to the world of Dark Ages. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to the World of Dark Ages podcast. My name is Jacob. And I'm Peter. So, with uh, this being episode 8, we're getting close to our 10th episode, and we figured we'd celebrate a bit and do something special. Yes, because we've, you, as usual with these kinds of podcasts, from what I've done research on the internet, questions and answers seems to be a popular thing, and we want to be popular as well. So, <laughs> uh, for the 10th episode, if there is anything in particular that you would like to ask us, please put that on our Facebook page or uh, email us at... uh, uh, Jacob will put up the email address. uh, uh, Or if there is anything that you would like us to bring up in a side quest uh, that you have been wondering about, or uh, if there is anything in particular uh, during the regular podcasts that you would like us to focus a bit more on, please let us know and we'll try to uh, bring it up and answer... Uh, as many questions as we have uh, time for, uh, for the 10th celebratory episode. Yeah, exactly. Um, we also have a Discord server now. Uh, it's called uh, World of Dark Ages Podcast, no surprise there. So you can pop by, say hi, and ask your questions there um, about the game, about us. If it gets too personal, we might not answer them. <laughs> but uh, but yeah. Uh, we or would, we, we might, would... and you might regret asking the question. Oh dear, yes, that too. <laughs> so, um, our book today is Dark Ages Companion, uh, written by Andrew Bates, Jackie Casada, Ken Cliff, Richard Dansky, Robert Hatch, Michael Lee, Nikki Rias, Sean Rodriguez, E. Gibson, Ethan Skemp, Cynthia Summers, and Frank Yelp, developed by Justin Akili. Whew, a lot of people there. Well, so, it's, it's a big book, so. It really, really is. Now, uh, this is, I think, the first book where I will say I really do not like the cover. The main character on the cover has the the spell, space elf vibe yeah. that you've been talking about before. And when it comes to history, well, uh, his sword is anachronistic and the victim's dagger has an anachronistic guard. I'm assuming that the victim's armor... Uh, well, it looks to be made up of squares of metal, so maybe some kind of of coat of plates of brigandine, which did not exist in Europe in 1197, and certainly did not have the trousers that he's wearing. Uh, they did have male trousers, and they would have looked somewhat like they do on the cover, but it's weird that he isn't wearing anything under them, what it yeah, looks like. Yeah, it, it looks more like some kind of weird fetish uh, stay-up. Um. <laughs> yeah. Um, his helmet is decent, but it's weird that he's not wearing armor on his arms. And then mm. there's the city, yeah. um, the the red tile roofs, the chimney, the walls not having any visible timber. This the, really the windows, looks, the doors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it it looks like a much later city. Now it possibly could be uh, Lübeck post 1251 because the city burned down that year, and afterwards it was actually mandated that all buildings had to be built with uh, with brick but obviously you know this is supposed to be 1197 so so yeah this this really didn't work for me no me neither 
I just want to point out that that the victim's helmet has an upside down Triforce from from Zelda on it. Uh, not, not not sure why, but I just noticed it. Uh, yeah, I, I I totally agree with the with your assessment that the the city is is way too too modern, um, and and too well organized for because a lot of medieval cities were basically sprawls that you if if you had a plot of land then you built a house to it, yeah, um, and and so the the modern wide uh, wide avenues that that we have today that's a much later um, tradition. Um, like for example, the uh, during the 18th, 18th century and and even 19th century, when you had all of the the uprisings in in Paris, when they they actually designed the new uh, the, the new city layouts in the 1800s, the reason that they they decided to have such wide roads and avenues was to make it more difficult for revolutionaries to put up barricades in in the narrow streets. Which you could easily do before that. So, um, yeah, it, it's yeah, it, it's a very weird cover. The the, the anatomy of the characters uh, and everything else just has a very peculiar vibe to it. Yeah. Um, well, the interior. We'll get into uh, the the comic that started mm-hmm. all. But aside from that, I really like uh, the interior art. Uh, they, I think there's a lot of really good stuff in there. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, there there are some in particular that I would like to point out, uh, and and it they're not necessarily uh, very historically accurate because you can always find inaccuracies. But but yeah. overall, there is uh, I really like the the feel and and the evocative mode uh, or evocative feelings that you get from from a lot of the pictures uh, so for example in on page uh, 155 we have uh, what i assume is some kind of red cap or uh, similar uh, changing squaring off against a hag uh, and uh, and the, uh, the red cap is is holding a dagger but um, what I actually didn't notice at first was that around his his neck he has a necklace of severed fingers. Uh, <laughs> so just just noticing that extra little detail uh, be- because it's not straight up in your face, so so you you actually uh, had to discover it for yourself. I, I really like that. Um, and also on page, let me just see. So uh, uh, on yeah. Uh, no, I'll find it later. But uh, but but yeah, there there are some very good ones. There are, there are a few really bad ones uh, as well. But uh, overall, uh, the the artwork is, if nothing, uh, very nicely drawn uh, for most part. Yeah, I was I was uh, thinking in um, in the um, uh, section about Faye, the clothes that that they're wearing. That is um, a couple of hundred years too uh, too early. Mm. Yeah. Um, but there are some really good town and castle pictures. Uh, page thirty-one, we have some people reading from a scroll, which uh, is is just a perfect picture uh, showing how uh, people of this time would be reading from scrolls, uh, especially since there were just as many scrolls as there were um, as there were books. Mm. So, so that's a, a pretty good one. It could e- uh, even be Jews reading from the from the Torah. Um, 
obviously there are a few inaccuracies with weapons and armor, and of course I'm going to point some of them out. Uh, page 35 has a weird halberd-looking weapon that has little basis in, in history. Um, the sword wielded by the Lamia, which is on page 71, that has some fantasy vibes to it. Yeah. Um, page 88, there's someone wielding a falchion that's at least 100 years too early. And the less said about uh, the sword and everything else on page 148, the better. That's a that's like a, a, a Warhammer picture or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, that, that guy, yeah. Um. <laughs> uh, but there's also some very, very good stuff in the pictures. Um, if we return to page 35, it looks like some of the people are wearing padded armor, which was a lot more popular than uh, than Hollywood would, would let us uh, on. Yeah. Uh, I, and, I would also like to point out the, the helmet to to the guy on the right in, in the background. That is uh, a very, uh, I, I would say, uh, Eastern Europe or, or Middle Eastern style with, with the kind of uh, twisted peak yeah, uh, top Yeah, very on it. much. Yeah. Very, very much. Mm. Um, and on the next page, page 36, uh, you have an archer that is quite clearly wearing padded armor, a cap that could be either padded or leather, and he's also wearing a sword and buckler yeah. as a backup for his bow, yeah. which is what a lot of archers would do. Yeah. So that, that picture specifically I really love because that's just, uh, they, they get everything right about the the weapons and armor of this guy. Yeah, and I'm I'm actually a bit curious about this picture because um, I I don't know if uh, if you've ever encountered it, but there is a um, a, a book publishing company called uh, Eyewitness Book. I think is the the English um, uh, name for it, uh, and it basically is um, uh, fact uh, fact books about anything from from animals to um, knights in a medieval time to to ships uh, to weapons in general and and what they do is that I think we have I think we have something similar here in Denmark if it's not the same it might be the same I, I think I've seen it in in uh, in libraries from time to time yeah uh, and and so what what they do usually with um, is that they start chrono if there is a, if the book is about a subject where that works. Uh, so they start chronologically. So the books, uh, the book about uh, about weapons and armor starts at the Stone Age with basic, simple uh, clubs and and uh, stone axes, and then they go all the way up to basically modern times. Um, and and uh, the the pictures are usually of of historical uh, artifacts and and actual uh, archaeological finds, uh, and it has some inaccuracies in it but but overall it's it, uh, it's a very good series if nothing else because there's a lot of nice uh, photographs in them um, and in the one about knights uh, they talk about not necessarily only about knights but also medieval uh, warfare a bit and there is a picture of uh, a reenactor um, wearing uh, uh, or posing as an archer and and the pose and and the equipment is very similar to to the uh, picture of uh, in in this book, uh, right mm -hmm. down to to the sword and buckler and uh, the uh, what I uh, interpret as some kind of leg protection on uh, on on the leg uh, and the padded armor and the cap and everything. So I wonder if uh, Leif, who did uh, who painted this picture, uh, had that book and used it. Um, to draw could from. be could very well, well uh, be so um, so well well done on the research for that one i yeah. i really like that one 
Okay, so um, we start the book with a relatively long intro comic, 24 pages. It's about a Malkavian being a fool in a mortal lord's court. Uh, he, he embraces a visiting squire, sends him out into the world, and then more stuff happens. Mm. Honestly, this really didn't do anything for me. No, me, me neither. Um, it's it's a bit too much on the nose. I, I think the Malkavian is supposed to be a woman, actually, or... or because mm. uh, it, in some she, she has some very um, obvious uh, memories, but they they don't make a point out of that, which I kind of like. But but the story yeah. as such doesn't really do anything for me. Um, it, no. it has a style of drawing that really isn't much for me. Um, the the outfits and and the uh, the characters or the clothes are actually not not that bad, uh, but yeah, again, it's it's uh, it's twenty four pages that they probably could have used for something else. Um, mm. I, I do like the kind of uh, the the interlude with the with the Nosferatu uh, hanging out with a bunch of lepers, though. Uh, yeah. All right. So uh, after the comic, we have an introduction which doesn't really contain anything other than introducing the book. It's it's just basically saying what's what's in the book. Chapter one is combat, and I shall try to keep this short. <laughs> Actually, it's 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 all pretty okay. Mm. At first, you have a few combat maneuvers, which includes uh, repost, and apparently, I personally have at least melee two and dexterity two because I can certainly do a repost with a longsword. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I I don't know if I like the idea that you need specific stats for some of these maneuvers, but one maneuver that I really like is the gobbet rend, where you rip away some flesh yeah. and. In the case of vampires and blood, I mean that's nasty. And if you uh, go up against someone who used that maneuver, you really know that that they're um, they're brutal. And and if you yeah. play someone who's a really brutal character, that's a good signature move for them. Uh, we also get a note on signature style. Nothing to say here. And then a system for stapling. That is pinning someone's armor or clothing with an arrow. And what I like about this is that they specifically say that this is pretty cinematic yeah yeah o overall I, I i again i um i don't think that vampire masquerade is uh is a game that is very suitable for too much combat uh it, the the system isn't really it, it's not really made for it but but i i do like the fact that they have these uh the the different maneuvers uh and and like you mentioned, that the the uh, the, the stapling and and the uh, ripping off the flesh part. The the only part about that that I found kind of weird was that it says that uh, you must rip since since the vampire's heart's uh, heart isn't beating, the blood isn't pumped around the uh, the body. So you must find a part of the body that is actually. Uh, that is that actually holds vitae and so i'm thinking that like how how do you figure that out and how is it decided where where the blood ends up but if if you just mm. ignore that um yeah it's uh it, it, it's a simple system like you mentioned some of the uh, requirements uh, feels kind of out of place but but overall uh it's it doesn't turn the uh turn turn the game into math hammer or or just a bunch of figuring out the most optimum move uh it um, 
it, it, it's not that one maneuver is uh, superior to another in, in, in a way that it's overpowered. Uh, you, you can you can add a bit more flair to your uh, to your combat and and as they mentioned that just saying that I attack I dodge that's kind of boring mm. uh, so so with this um, I, I overall I think this is probably something that uh, a good storyteller uh, and player could kind of figure out on their own but if, yeah. if you're a beginner or if you want inspiration or if you kind of like I want to do this could I actually do it? And then the storyteller could look at, yeah, we can call this a a repost or a faint or or a whatever, and just just roll this and, and see what uh, what yeah. you end up in. Uh, so so yeah, it's uh, um, yeah, I especially like the part with the with the signature styles that that they actually mentioned that there are different ways, not necessarily in this particular time period, but more later on that that fencing in Spain uh, with the rapier was quite different from fencing in Italy with rapier. Um, oh yes, for, very for much reasons. so. For uh, reasons. Yeah. So, so yeah, um, there, there are some mention of uh, people wielding uh, two long swords and stuff like that, which I guess yeah, we both do. I, I, spe- I, I specifically wrote down here, it, the, they say, a warrior armed with paired long swords may win a fight with intimidation alone. Now, we'll ignore the fact that longswords won't be a thing for at least 100 years, but uh, no. Anyone trying to wield two longswords are going to run out of steam really, really fast since longswords are weighted and balanced for two-handed use, so the muscles in their arms and wrists are going to be ruined pretty fast um, by by trying to wield that. So anyone who knows anything about using a longsword would look at someone trying to wield two longswords and just go, (laughs) Yeah, even that. Though... Again, well, a vampire doesn't run out of breath, but but yeah, still, it's it's more of a practical thing as well that you you actually have mm. to be able to maneuver them uh, around. Uh, there were two weapon fighting uh, at times, like the the most common that I would think of would be a rapier and dagger or um, uh, sword and buckler. I would also almost call two weapon fighting since the buckler sword and buckler could could, use... could yes be. Be specifically consider two weapons because how offensive you can yeah. you can be with a buckler. Uh, and uh, two axes has some basis in at least the sagas, but yeah. of course we don't know that much about the Viking Age. So yeah, uh, I, I would speaking of axes though, I, I would like to point out that uh, if at least if if my research hasn't uh, misled me completely. Uh, in in the Americas, uh, the the kind of uh, warriors who would fight with uh, what we call a tomahawk uh, would often pair it with a knife because mm. it's it's often quite useful to to have something in your offhand, so to speak, to if nothing else, then to be able to parry or, or get a quick jab in. So yeah. if if you want to go with two weapon fighting, uh, one longer weapon like an an axe or a sword or something like that and something short that you could just if nothing that that doesn't get in the way of your main weapon like a dagger or maybe just even a short club or something like that mm, that yes. would would probably make the most sense yeah they also have a, a short section about um, reach, uh, mentioning just how important yeah. a reach is, because that often get ignored. Um, they give some system suggestions, but they ultimately say that involving reach uh, could get unnecessarily complex. Yeah. 
Uh, and I, I kind of agree there, but on the other hand, I mean, Reach, uh, after I started um, doing longsword fencing, I realized just how incredibly important mm -hmm. Reach is. But like you said, I mean, this is this is supposed to be a rather simple system, so you can either ignore Reach or you can give like a tiny mechanical benefit, because otherwise you get into Math Hammer, yeah. um, which is not where we want to be. Yeah, and, and especially with Reach, you can run into the problem that, yeah, if, if you have... A spear and I have a dagger then you're gonna have an advantage over me as long as you keep me on the right end of that spear but if I get in too close your your spear could turn into more of a hindrance than an advantage so exactly so how do you That'd deal be... with that and it's yeah yeah keep it simple folks at least in this mm. system <laughs> So next we have uh, mounted combat, which includes trampling, not just from um, mounts, but also from things like uh, a, a mob. Yeah. Uh, it's good stuff. Uh, it mentions how vampires have trouble with horses if they don't have animalism. Uh, and I always like when they when they bring this up, because I think sometimes it, it gets uh, forgotten, uh, including by the writers themselves, if we go back to the Clash of, of Wills um, scenario. we have to go back with... to that one? <laughs> no, it's just, <laughs> yeah, the characters were given yeah, uh, horses uh, yeah. and no mention of the fact that, you know, they shouldn't be able to ride yeah. them. Uh, there's also a section on sieges, which um, is also a, f a good solid section. Mm. I really like the bit on stuff that can be poured on people trying to storm oh, a, yeah, yeah. a castle wall, but it lacks one thing. Uh, I can't remember the, the English word for it, it but um, uh, calcium powder, what's it called? Um, Quicklime? Quicklime, thank you. Uh, well, actually, the one I was thinking of, but yeah, quicklime. Oh, that's nasty stuff. The one I was thinking of was emptying chamber pots on the attackers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because it, it might not hurt, but you're going to be somewhat distracted if you get chamber pots emptied on you, and later you could die of disease. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I agree with that, and I also like the, the section on... Uh, uh, on uh, well, the entire combat section, I think, is, is really good. Yeah. Uh, I, I especially enjoy that, that they put in mobs as something that you could be trampled by, uh, since since that could happen if, uh, for for the viewers who, who saw the uh, Game of Thrones show, you have uh, a very good example of that in the Battle of the Bastards, where uh, they are surrounded. We, we can... We, I'm not going to go into the other parts of that battle which is just <laughs> incredibly stupid uh, but the, the the part where the uh, where, where the heroes are surrounded and they get basically crushed uh, is, mm. is very well done uh, and uh, yeah so so if you want to uh, get inspiration for how a mob could trample you or just crush you uh, look at that uh, mm. so, yeah so we we end with a section on warfare including remarks on uh, um, vampires in in war mm. and subsistence for running battles. I really like how they make it clear that, in general, vampires should not get involved with open warfare yeah. since they'll have trouble traveling with the armies and battles are fought in daylight. So nothing much to add here except for a nitpick. They refer to soldiers firing arrows. Yeah. You don't fire arrows, you fire guns. That's why they're called firearms. You shoot arrows instead but or, that's or that's really them. it for my comments yeah or loose them uh it's it's uh, uh either ready draw loose or draw aim loose yeah. um 
but that's it for my comments on this. You know, it's if if you want to include warfare and you want a system for it, it's it's nice mm-hmm. to have and it's nice that they say you know vampires generally don't get involved because you don't generally fight battles at night. Yeah, and uh, I I also do like the that that they have the the section of the lead up that that uh, you just don't like click on a spawn button and all of a sudden you have 150 men at arms and then you just go and attack your opponents that that you actually have to to have a build up to it how do you gather the troops how do you organize them uh, how do you yeah. transport and how do you get food for everyone um there is uh, speaking of night battles uh there uh, there was i can't remember the name of it but but during the hundred years war and and the reason that it is mentioned is because it's it's a night battle and uh, and and thus unusual and it was a uh, I can't remember if it was a uh, a castle or a city uh, that was held by the English and being sieged by three different camps of, of Frenchmen uh, and so uh, what what happened uh, is in some ways a bit unclear uh, because the uh, the besiegers uh, apparently wanted to attack at night to get the the element of surprise and they wanted if i remember correctly they they were in a kind of a hurry because there was a relief force on the way um but the the english uh noticed it and uh, even though they were outnumbered i think something like three to one they they managed to make uh, a sally forth from from the castle uh and in the confusion they managed to to beat all three uh, French, um, well, I wouldn't call them armies, but but French camps of battalions, uh, perhaps. Yeah, uh, since since it was just so incredibly confusing, and and the French didn't know uh, who attacked them, and uh, and they didn't know how to uh, how to get in contact with with other camps to, to call for for backup and stuff like that. So uh, so uh, it's it's just. Uh, if you want to do a night battle, uh, I, I would suggest uh, emphasizing the, the incredible confusion and uh, disorientation that j- just darkness will, will bring. Uh, because oh, yes, it will be much. much harder to, uh, to, to organize everything. Uh, humans don't have night vi- vision uh, or anything like that. Uh, you didn't really have uniforms in uh, in any particular way, uh, even though the English started with a bit with the Red Cross um, mm. uh, during the Hundred Years' War and a bit earlier, I think. Uh, but but yeah, uh, avoid, uh, or, or rather, I wouldn't say avoid uh, open battles with vampires completely, but if you do, make it something special and, and make it like the, the high point or, or like yeah. the, the big showpiece of... Um, of your campaign, or at least that part of the campaign, uh, there is there is one kind of nitpicking thing. Uh, the, I, I don't really have a problem with uh, with the rules as such, but they mention uh, that one of the dangers that uh, a vampire on on the battlefield can uh, can can encounter is that if if they get uh, if they have an arrow shot. Uh, through your chest, then you can become staked. Which, yeah, that that makes sense. But they also uh, mentioned that knights would ride around with victims impaled on their lances. Uh, uh, and and if if we just ignore the fact that 
uh, that, that that a human body would probably be uh, would would probably snap uh, the lance if you try to lift it up. Yeah, a human body is incredibly heavy, especially if it's wearing um, any kind of armor and and weaponry and stuff like that. And and to lift it up, the lance would act like a lever against the knight trying to hold it up. And even if and, you and the lance is held in only one hand. Yeah, exactly. And, and even if you had the strength uh, to to do that, it would just become incredibly unwieldy to to run around with. Um, yeah. Or ride around, hopefully at least, uh, with with a, a body impaled on on your lance because it would make it useless. So I I don't know where that comes from or or what they thought about that, but yeah, please don't do that. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that that is a uh, a weird weird idea to have. Mm. Um, chapter two is about Canite roads and framed as a scholarly Canite writing a a treatise on roads for a prince. I like this chapter. It goes deeper into the roads without spending too much space on them, and it certainly gives both players and storytellers something to think about when portraying Canites following these roads. Uh, so all in all, I I like this chapter. Peter? Yeah, I I did as well. There, um, o- overall, uh, I did find that some of the roads um, weren't as well written as some of the other, but but all in all, um, not having really played with with anything more than than basically humanity in uh, in the modern nights, I I really liked them because um, they, well, I wouldn't say simplify the roads, but but they. Um, they show that that they don't need to be as complicated as as trying to figure out how to uh, get your mind into a completely different uh, philosophy or way of life from um, from from how you as as a human player would think and act and feel and stuff like that. So um, so so yeah, I really like it. And and as you said, it's it's written very um, very much as a, a uh, scholarly um, piece and and some of the examples like for example the uh, the ventru on on road of chivalry serving a, a la sombra because it's the right thing to do my honor dictates it uh, mm. stuff like that is is really nice and uh, and I like it and the the road of, of paradox uh, and uh, what is it corruption the the setite one I found um, a bit too too stereotypical uh, or cliched for for what they yeah. are, uh, but yeah, you you could you could easily easily change it around if if you wanted to actually include them. But they were the 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 kind of the the setite portrayed as basically being a guy standing in a corner with a long coat and like. Hey kids, wanna buy some drugs? It, yeah, that that is a problem for the setites yeah. for a long time. Yeah, uh, and and it could probably be done a lot better in um, if if you just sit around and, and think for it a while. Like like um, I'm I'm thinking Lady Macbeth uh, trying to uh, to get her husband to to kill the Duncans uh, rather than just. Yeah, being the like, hey kids, do you want to be, want to do drugs stuff. Mm, yeah. Um, so, so yeah. Uh, but again, overall, I I really liked it, and um, I I liked that the 
they made a difference be, be, uh, between uh, Road of Heavens and Road of Humanity because previously I've, uh, I, I, I've had a bit of a hard time uh, seeing the difference between those two because I find them very similar, but uh, now they put a bit, uh, bit of a twist on them both and they, uh, they differentiate uh, yeah. between them. Uh, so yeah. that I really liked. Yeah, it's 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 always nice to have more information, especially if you want to step off the the road of humanity, uh, which we're all supposed to be on. Mm. <clears throat> so, uh, chapter three is bloodlines. We start off with the Liban, who are sub-Saharan African Canaanites. Later in the modern day book, Kindred of the Ebony Kingdom, uh, they will be fleshed out to several lines, but here they're just a single bloodline. Now, this might be selling the vast expanse of Africa short, but then again, Vampire, and especially Dark Ages, is based on a Christian-inspired mythology, and it focuses a lot on Europe and the Middle East, so I really don't have any problem with, in this instance, Sub-Saharan Africa being represented by a single bloodline. Um, in the 20th anniversary edition, they include... The, the lines that have then been established in later books. So we'll get to uh, to how that works. Mm. Uh, the Libon are portrayed as divided between those who stay in their native lands and wandering storytellers and wise men. While they're certainly interesting, I have to say that with the information given here, I would have trouble seeing them as anything other than NPCs. There's just not enough to have them as player characters, in, in my opinion. Uh, but what do you say? Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I, um, I, I I mentioned it previously, but I'm I'm not a big fan of having too many bloodlines because then you're gonna run out of, of places to put them and humans to feed on. But uh, this having like one uh, specifically sub-Saharan one, I I don't mind. Uh, I probably would put other clans down there as well or, or in Africa in general and, and probably in the uh, <clears throat> on other places in the rest of the world as well uh, because uh, I, I would kind of go with uh, um, Neil Gaiman's American Gods uh, approach that it, it's enough for for vam one vampire to, to end up in, in a different part of the world to be able to, to create more and, and to kind mm. of like set them there yeah. so uh but so so i am thinking that that gangrel and brucha um perhaps even la sombra or, or asamites could easily end up in uh, in all parts of of africa um but yeah as a clan like like you mentioned it's there's really nothing wrong with it i i like how they are portrayed um no, nothing really stereotypical about them but i i struggle like you to to find an an actual use for them, um, perhaps in a game where uh, if, where where all of the characters are from Africa or or Libon, then then it could be interesting to set it in um, in in the European or at least the Eurocentric area. Um, but but yeah, overall it it would be very difficult for them to to fit in with a bunch of, of like German Ventru and, and Spanish La Sombra. <laughs> uh, yeah. And it also, one thing that, that annoys me a bit is uh, it mentions that, that they have learned uh, a path of thematogy from the spirits of the earth. And, and I, I'm not a big fan of the huge proliferation of, of thematogy. Mm. 
Um, but that's just that's just me. I I like the idea that the Tremere brought something new and special, yeah. uh, rather than everybody having yeah. having access to the magic. Yeah. Uh, next are the Lianen, which are supposed to be the general quote unquote pagan barbarian vampires, but they just come across as very, very Celtic. Their special discipline is even called Ogham, yeah. which of course is the, the name for the Celtic script. Yeah. They come across as extremely stereotypical, yeah. and I really think that they uh, do a much better job representing them as an interesting bloodline in later books. Here, uh, I just see them as antagonists, really. They don't really seem to fit into most chronicles. If you're setting a chronicle in the times before Christianity came to dominate Europe, they have some potential, but once again, there's not a lot of information uh, so that you can make them, you know, diverse and, and interesting. And they they are written very, very stereotypical. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah I, I agree with that. And uh, again, like you just mentioned that, do we really do we really need another bloodline? Uh, couldn't this just be a, a sect or, or a family of say gangrel or um, mm. or perhaps even tremere if you want to go with with the more like cultist feel or or even bali um if if you want to include those like the, these are, are a sect that are loosely connected over the well there aren't really that many of them to begin with so so they could just be a bunch of, of rural bali or um uh, or or um, uh, <clears throat> gangrel perhaps that that are set to to live in their own ways and and uh, perhaps have taken up blood cults as as a way to uh, preserve their way of living or as a way to fight the encroachment of Christianity. So mm. um, yeah, I, I really don't know um, anything about them except for this. So if if they are better written in another book, I'm I'm not going to say anything about that, but. In in this setting, I yeah I, I don't feel the need for them to be their own bloodline. I'd rather just have them as as a sect or or as you mentioned as antagonists, and they could easily uh, fit. I would say almost even better in uh, as uh, as belonging to another clan. Mm. Uh, then we have the uh, the Lamia which happened to be one of my favorite Dark Ages bloodlines. And one I mentioned in our last book mm. review uh, that we would be getting a new look at. So what do you think of them now that, that they have this write-up? Yeah, I uh, I liked them in Clan Book Cappadocian, and I, I still like them uh, in in this setting as um, with kind of like... Uh, the, the, the main problem that I see is that they have a very almost unplayable weakness is that they, they spread a plague around them. Um, yeah, that, that is a problem. Yeah, because that makes them pretty damn almost useless to have as a player character in any long-running uh, campaign or chronicle. I, I, I like the, <laughs> everything else about them almost. I would say that, that they have this uh, the connection to uh, to corpsedom and to to the Cappadocians um, and and stuff like that, but um, I yeah I, I it's, um, yeah I, I'm having a difficult time to to try to figure out how to deal with their 
uh, their clan weakness, which is that they spread a plague. Uh, and uh, I, I would probably think that just the the actual victim that you feed on, and if you don't kill it, that 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 could be the that person or animal could be infected and perhaps die. But having it be a, a virulent plague that spreads from not only the person that the the vampire feed on, but to other people, that's just not going to work over in in long time. No, no. Uh, I mean, disease is incredibly deadly and dangerous in in the Middle Ages, and it's it's since this is of supernatural origin, uh, I'm thinking that there's no such thing as acquired immunity to it. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, so finally we have the Lasupri, Salupri, mm. the one that doesn't start with an L. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, first comment. Once again, some unfortunate use of the word gypsy, mm. uh, including in the appearance paragraph. Uh, and in the appearance paragraph, we have something that I think you might want to comment on. Uh, well, what are you thinking about? The... Well, they say that, that in order to conceal their third oh, yeah. eye, yeah. They, they usually wear hoods or uh, a as they say it, gypsy-type uh, yeah. scarf. But there's something else they could wear. A hat or, or exactly. anything. Yeah. So, so, yeah, it, it shouldn't <laughs> really be that difficult to uh, to cover it up. Um, except, of course, that in uh, in some places you're supposed to remove your, your headwear if you're a man. Uh, and so uh, but those are usually holy places which vampires have difficulty dealing with anyways. So... Um, but yeah, again, people look how useful hats are. Uh, yeah, and we've we've talked about them before. Yeah. Wear a hat. So um, yeah, and and I'm not sure that that a hood would be really good because hoods are are useful in situations where where you don't need like peripheral vision or or even hearing because it sounds get muffled if if you have a very thick hood. Um, especially if it's lined with fur, I've noticed that that can uh, cause issues with hearing. Mm. Uh, so no, I didn't even think about uh, that. So, so a simple, a, a simple hat of, of any other kind, or like a soft cap, would probably be, be better um, and yeah. more stylish, in my opinion. <laughs> awesome. Uh, anyway, this is the only bloodline that has appeared before, and it's interesting to get some more information on it. Although I think they don't adequately explain how in just 50 years the Tremere managed to both slander and hunt the Salubri to the degree described. We also get our first introduction, at least as far as I'm aware, of the warrior Salubri. And while I like the division, I really like the division, mm. I'm also really, really curious about who came up with this divide and what the idea behind it was. I would love to talk to whoever came up with it and, and you know, because other clans... You, you have the Asamites who, who have a divide, but most of the other clans don't have this divide with separate disciplines or separate um, approaches to a discipline. Yeah. And, and it would just be interesting to know why and how they came up with it. Uh, there's also some nice teasing hints about the Salubri connection to the Bali, yeah. which is something that, that gets explored much uh, in much more detail later, especially in the Transylvania Chronicles, which we'll get to once I'm allowed. <laughs> Uh, and then there's a bit of a historical goof as it mentions that some of them shelter among heretical sects like the Templars and the Manichaeans. Uh, now, 
while spurious charges of heresy were brought against the Templars, nobody considers them heretics in 1197, yeah. where they're a very well-regarded holy order. Yeah. Uh, so, but what comments do you have to the to the Salubri? Well, you, you pretty much brought them up already. Uh, that I, I do like the the kind of divide between uh, warriors and healers. I'm I'm just trying to figure out how it would work if uh, you are a character that is on defense and or or doesn't really belong to any group because you have a different. Uh, you, you have a different clan weakness depending on if, if mm. you're a warrior or a healer. But I'm, I'm guessing that you would kind of end up in, in one or the other camp uh, as uh, quite quickly. Um, I, I do like the, the organization uh, part the, or the, under, under the heading of organization where they mention that they have the uh, kind of secret uh, messaging system with with uh, drop boxes and 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 like scribbling um, strange messages on on walls in monasteries and and other places um, we once again have monasteries yeah how, how many how many different vampires are living in monasteries <laughs> yeah. now? Uh, no but, it's but, a lot uh, like <laughs> you, you could you, you could easily have it like um, I'm, I'm thinking that that rune stones appear at least in in Sweden we have a lot of them. Uh, uh, Denmark that, but, as well, yes. Yeah. Uh, and and like waystones and stuff like that. If you you just add, uh, you could easily have that as as people scribbling stuff on it. Um, here here in I think it's quite prevalent in Scandinavia as well, where you had the uh, in, in later times when when you had the uh, the the vagabonds and people uh, wandering yeah. about. They they had different symbols that they would carve. Um, at uh, at the gateposts of, of farms and stuff like that, so it's uh, like beware of the dogs, or this farmer is nice, or this farmer is an mm. asshole. They would they would carve a sign uh, that that other vagabonds uh, could could look for, uh, and it, it was quite uh, a, a language, uh, and a lot of modern slang is derived from uh, from that kind of uh, internal. Um, uh, yeah, can't more or less that that uh, the vagabonds had in in these times. Yeah. Uh, so so yeah. Again, it's uh, it's very well written, but um, I, I I I would probably have um, uh, if someone wanted to play uh, a salubri, uh, then then again they would probably end well they, they would end up dead sooner or later which <laughs> if a player wants to do that yeah go ahead mm. i think of all the the bloodlines presented here they are the ones that are that most lend themselves to um, to being a player character yeah uh, um, at least together with other clans or or in a more yeah. general uh, generalized yeah. campaign Yes. So, um, chapter four is new disciplines and discipline powers for existing disciplines, covering level six to eight. Uh, strangely, not, not level nine, though I'm assuming that's because they figured they're not going to involve fourth generation um, vampires. But um, anyway, I really like this since elders are likely to play a bigger role in a Dark Ages game. 
This also gives us what I think is the first instance of specific powers for the three physical disciplines, celerity, fortitude, and potence, which is an interesting take. There's also some new thematity paths. There's a lot of powers and disciplines here, and I don't think we need to go through all of it. Do you have any high-level powers for the old disciplines that you want to highlight as being especially good or bad? Uh, well, first, in, in general, that... Uh I, I do think that there, or there was a combined fortitude power in the Cappadocian book, but but yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I, I don't really have any special uh, comments in in general. I, I feel that they they work uh, probably work as intended. I haven't really played them. Uh, I would like to point out the uh, the, the armor of vitality power of, of fortitude, which is um, I'm I'm kind of on the fence on this one because what it does is that you're you're so tough that if if someone hits you with um, well it doesn't even say weapon it says that that uh, if if you're hit with an object you can spend a blood point and roll your fortitude difficult of seven and if you succeed um, the object smashes to bits uh, and in in a way that is really cool uh, because mm. if if you have you, you, first of all, you're most likely going to succeed because you're going to roll six dots. Well, you're going to roll uh, six dice, uh, and mm -hmm. you only need one success. On the other hand, uh, this is this is something that you take instead of fortitude level seven, uh, <laughs> and and I'm yes. thinking that a character with, with with fortitude level seven wouldn't this basically happen anyways or, or couldn't you just have it like a, a cool moment for uh, not, not all the time of course because uh, I, I can think uh, I, I can imagine using this as an intimidation tactic that basically mm. in one of those uh, fights the, that you have um, ba basically like the, the Terminator where in in the uh, in Terminator 2, where he walks into the biker bar and, and yeah, people exactly. smash things over his head and, and stab him with knives and, <laughs> and nothing happens. Uh, and but but again, I would probably kind of allow that for for a character with with fortitude of seven, anyways, because mm. you can soak up a lot of damage with with that amount. Um, but it's it's a really cool visual. Yeah, yeah, it is. So so that's where I like it. Um, but I'm I'm struggling to see if it's worth spending that amount of um, of experience points on. But yeah, if, it, I assume if if you if you expect to go up against a lot of people using somehow magical weapons, or you fear asimites with mm. poisons on their weapons and things yeah, like that. Yeah, that's a good but point. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a bit of a narrow focus. Yeah. I have one power that I really want to talk about, um, and that is. Potence level 7, the Forger's Hammer. Uh, this allows the user to forge exceptional weapons using their uh, own um, hands, translating uh, into the weapon, doing extra dice of damage. And I think that's a really cool and thematic power, you know, you're str so strong. There are three problems, however. Number one, this is described as an ancient Brugia power that has all but disappeared. If we go back to ancient times, Weapons were made of bronze rather than iron or steel, and bronze was cast rather than forged. Though you can claim that they were able, able to work hard on it better, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. But still, I mean, it's 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 called the forger's hammer. 
but it apparently dates back to when people were making bronze weapons. Well, or, <laughs> Number two. or if you want to expand, uh, you could you could say that um, that it comes from uh, from China, perhaps, because uh, the oh, Chinese used or steel India. weapons, or at least iron weapons, long before that. Yeah. So, so if you if you want to have um, to move away a bit from the Eurocentric uh, focus a bit, then then it could work. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, yeah I, or, I, or for I, that matter, India, yeah, yeah, uh, India which was well, famous yeah, for its crucible uh, steel, that works as well. Uh, but I I agree with with your grievances over it, and I also agree that it's it's a really cool power and. Mm. Um, but there, I'm, there's actually there's there's more. Yeah, <laughs> because uh, the role for the forging process is strength plus crafts difficulty eight. Each two successes give the weapon plus one to its damage maximum of plus three. This is a level seven potent power so the user will have at bare minimum five automatic successes on any strength roll like the roll to forge the blade so if you get one success on the roll to forge the blade you end up with six successes because of your potence which translates to the maximum of plus three so that's that's a bit of an oversight there. Somebody yeah. did not remember that potence gives automatic successes. Yeah. Uh, and finally, all the damage that the blade does is then aggravated, yeah. which I think is hugely overpowered because you are creating a permanent yeah. aggravated damage weapon that can be given to others. But But specifically that one where they didn't really think about the fact that as long as you succeed on the roll to forge the weapon, then you automatically have... The number of successes needed to give it the max bonus. Yeah, that, that, um, that is a good point. Uh, you you could uh, you you could work around it a bit, saying that since since the um, uh, vampire has to use its bare hands, uh, but they have to work really close to fire, which causes rot shrek. Uh, <laughs> so so you would probably have to do a bit of of. Uh, frenzy testing to to avoid that. Uh, so yeah. so a character would probably have to spend a bit of willpower just to be able to to forge the blade. But but yeah, I, I agree with, with the problem that you uh, point out as well. Well, um, yeah, I, uh, I I I really like this power. So I I did a, a level six version of it uh, for um, Dark Ages Vampire. I can't remember if it's high clans or low clans. Mm. I think it's high clans that it's in where I, I made the role, I think I made it intelligence, because that, I think, to made, made more sense, so you didn't get all the potence and, and also remove the aggravated. But we'll, yeah. uh, so, so it's, it's still there, but I just, I, I just thought it was, it was fun that, that they missed this. Just to finish off on that, yeah. I, you could probably work it, make it work uh, if it, like you, that you have to spend um, a bunch of, of blood points that you imbue into the weapon and that the vampire mm. give it uh, empowering that so that it's just not not something that you can and that it has to take a bit of time so that it's not just not something that that a vampire can can deal out to to basically anyone uh, but yeah what i especially like that is that it's a potence power uh, that doesn't uh, directly deal with uh, deal with fighting or, or combat in, in that way that yeah. uh, it's it's something that you, you actually use when you're not hitting people. Uh, mm. to, uh, well, you will later on, but uh, <laughs> not straight away. But yeah, it's, it's not... You, you, can't, you can't really use this directly in combat. Mm. 
Yeah, and, um, and apparently, so, speaking of potents, it, it seems that uh, Bruce Lee uh, has the eighth level uh, potence of, of Touch of Pain, which is basically that you can touch people and do damage level equal uh, to the to your level of potence, which again is at least eight. So you can kill a mortal with a flick. Um, which I think is quite appropriate for a potence uh, power of that yeah. level. I mean, just killing killing mortals by just uh, giving them what we in Denmark call a smurf kick, you know, flicking yeah. your finger at them. I, I think that works perfectly. Yeah. Um, we then have the new disciplines, which include new ones for the new bloodlines, as well as Dark Thematogy, uh, Maleficia, or the Evil Eye for Cursing, and Striga for that traditional witch feel. I have to admit, Infernal Disciplines is a guilty pleasure of mine, and I think they can be very useful in creating antagonists who wield powers that are not only strange to the player characters, uh, but also out of their reach, unless they want to make some dangerous deals. Uh, what did you think of, of these new disciplines? Yeah, I, I I kind of agree with you on that. That it's it's cool to have something that is out of the the uh, player's reach because, uh, like like you also mentioned, that that it, it's a lot of thematology and and similar stuff going on, and it it kind of uh, waters out the um, the or dilutes the 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 speciality or the uniqueness of, of Tremere and their thematology. But, but if you use them uh, as, uh, again, as a storytelling device, that this is something that, uh, that you either almost quite literally has to sell your soul to, to gain access to, or just something that, uh, that NPCs can have, uh, then, then it gets a lot more interesting all of a sudden. Um, mm. Some of them, the 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 way of the the thematological path of way of the eleven bolt, um, I I just find kind of I don't know not not useless but not really worth it that you can create small sparks no, have, or, or light up a small. You have room. the way of fire and you have you have weather control where you can call down lightning bolts. So I, I think those two are are more interesting than being able to conjure. Uh, bolts of lightning from your hands. Yeah, or uh, asses for that matter. Uh, so, but but yeah, it's um, it's a bit of a hit and miss. And but the upside is that you don't have to use it if you don't want to. Um, exactly. I I do like the uh, the zombie dogs with with added horns, uh, or more like Frankenstein dog on on page ninety six. By the way, that uh, mm. I'm, I'm guessing that it's supposed to be. Um, a vicissitude dog uh, in in some way that it's been constructed by the uh, by Atsumichi. Uh but it, he just looks so so satisfied with himself. He, he looks kind of happy. Uh, so well, good, good I, I think Frankenstein that, dog. Yeah, I think that Tsumichi, you know, they they take good care of their hellhounds. They yeah. they treat them right. Yeah. So. Uh, I'll say this, the, the warrior version of Valoran has perhaps one of the most useless powers ever created, the level 4 power, ending the watch. It's very thematic. Uh, it allows the Salubri to kill someone who truly wants to die in a quick and painless yeah. matter, which also prevents them from becoming a wraith and being embraced at the moment of their death. Uh, but you're just thinking, when are you ever going to use that? And if you are, when are you ever going to use that more than once? However, um, I, I 
I'm currently playtesting um, a book that I'm writing for Storytellers Vault called Fall of Akra, and one of the um, the players is actually playing a warrior salubri. And uh, in one of the scenarios, I won't spoil too much if anybody wants to buy the book once it's out, but uh, this, this warrior salubri and another of the characters who is a very uh, religious uh, Nosferatu, they come upon a situation where there is a ghoul who has been mistreated so badly that all he wants to do is just ending the suffering. But the, the warrior Salubri does not yet have this power. Ah. Uh, and it's just like, for this is a perfect situation where this power would be just the right thing to have, but he hasn't bought it yet. So, uh, so, so the, the player was a bit, ah, oh, damn it, I could have used it here. And, and, but unfortunately, yeah. But uh, he'll, he'll, have that to, would be he'll have to find a Bruja with Potence 8 instead. Uh, well, they, they, they had weapons, yeah, so yeah, they just exactly. killed the, the, the ghoul. It was just, they had to kill the ghoul with weapons, and it was messy rather than just uh, a simple touch, painless death, ensuring that the soul moves on. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's a power that, it's very thematic for what the, the warrior salubri are about, but you're just not going to be yeah, using it. Yeah, I, I agree, and, and the, the fact that it's, uh, that it's a fourth level power where where you kind of expect something really cool because when when you actually get your fourth dot, dot of any discipline then you want it to be kind of special uh, and and not just a stepping stone to to level yeah. five uh, so there there is a there, uh, there is a terminology in in um... Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder called feet yeah, tax. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard about yeah. It. yeah, where the idea is that in order to get a very powerful uh, feat, you have to take a feat that you are almost never going to use. And it feel, feels almost like this is a, uh, a discipline tax mm. that you have to take an almost useless level four discipline in order to move on to a very, very powerful level five discipline. Yeah. And, and I agree. And, uh, and, and I want to go back to what you mentioned earlier that that it's it's something that can be useful and and very appropriate in 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 a very specific set of circumstances uh, because if if you you could probably find uh, more use for it than just maybe once uh, a game or chronicle but again <clears throat> if you use it too much it loses the, the the kind of special feel to it like like this is this is something that, again, if, if I would include it in, in my campaign, that you would ha you would work up to it that, okay, are you actually finally ready to die? Do you want to do that? Have, have, have you tied up all the loose ends and have you finished all your businesses and, and said your farewells? And then you do it to, to the, the character or to the NPC. Uh, mm. But if you just go around euthanizing people, it, it's going to lose its uh, its appeal and its um, its strangeness and uh, and and yeah, it's it's not going to be. It's not something that a player would run around doing. You no. you could you could perhaps have it as as um, uh, um, an NPC salubri basically doing. Uh, doing mortal Christians a favor of, of killing them in a nice way because suicide uh, is a mortal sin, so you wouldn't go to heaven. Mm. Uh, 
but but even then it it would just be something that I would use very sparsely uh, and not just like oh well wanna die go go down to to uh, Lubick Lubeck because that's where the the suicide uh, vampire lives and and he'll help you out. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah. It, it just becomes silly after a while mm. alright so um, chapter 5 is called matters of faith and looks at religion it has a section on catholic christianity but also covers orthodox christianity, heresies, paganism and more the section on uh, christianity talks about both uh, catholicism and eastern orthodoxy and while it's good info, I feel like some of the Catholic info has already been covered in other books such as Three Pillars. But, you know, considering the importance of Christianity in medieval Europe, it's not bad to have more information about it. Uh, one thing that I need to mention is in the intro to the section on Christianity, where it says that some people, to some people, uh, the church is, to quote, a repressive organization that seeks to crush all rational understanding. I doubt that even the most radical of heresies would say that the church seeks to crush rational understanding. At this point, almost all institutes of learning are in some way run, sponsored, or endorsed by the church, and the church is in no way opposed to, to education and even rational understanding. Uh, I mean, opponents might say that they're crushing spiritual understanding yeah. or leading people away from the right path, but when it comes to, to sort of understanding the world the church is very much involved in that because they want to understand god's creation yeah and and of course you you could probably make the argument that that they since since they want to have like a christian spin on it or or okay so why is this bad well because of the devil why is this good because of of god uh, and that mm. in in that way of thinking uh, you you kind of crush free thinking uh, but but yeah, I, I agree that um, that, that uh, it's it's a it's a bit exaggerated way of, of putting it. And, and like you mentioned, that uh, most of the seats of learning in the universities uh, are, uh, are are funded by um, by the church in one way or the other, or or our church uh, based. Like for example, the uh, the high school that I went to. Uh, is literally called the cathedral school because it dates back uh, to the to the time where where it was the cathedral in Uppsala who was yeah. the center of learning for for even yeah. like the, the basic learning for for noblemen's children learning how to read yes. and write. Uh, Same thing here in Denmark. The oldest high school we have in Denmark is the cathedral school of Ribe. Mm. Um So they they were setting up schools. Um, so it's it's. I think this is more of a modern uh, take on the church yeah. rather than something that is, you know, mm. in the Middle Ages. Mm. Uh, one thing that I absolutely love here, something that I think could use a highlight, uh, is an explanation uh, on the church declaring something anathema. When a thing, person, practice, or place mm. has been been declared anathema anyone using that thing interacting with that person practicing that practice <laughs> or, or going to that place are automatically excommunicated it then mentioned that the church has declared all dealings with the devil and his minions including vampires anathema mm. which means anything a vampire owns anywhere he dwells that is also anathema and anyone who interacts with a vampire is excommunicated. I really need to include this uh, some more in my games when set in predominantly Christian areas because this 
really shows you why people would want to um, avoid vampires and why it's important to have the silence of the blood so that people don't realize you're a vampire so that Christians will stop interacting with you because they know that if they do so they're going to be excommunicated yeah. uh, so this is something that I think is very very yeah. good um, this section also shows that at this point it seems that um, the only vampires in Muslim, la Muslim lands are Asamites this thankfully gets changed in later books because it's pretty stereotypical yeah. Uh, we get a good explanation of the conflict between Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, their differences, differences and some notes on the conflicts between secular and religious powers. So uh, what would you like to, to say with regards to, to this uh, particular uh, area? Well, I, I really, uh, really like it and I find it, uh, except for the fact, that, like you mentioned, that some of it uh, has already been covered, but then again, Perhaps the, you, you can't afford both uh, three pillars and this one, and so you just bought this book. Uh, and and it also, like you mentioned, that it's a very uh, important uh, part of, of European society. Um, yeah. I one one thing that I, I missed was that uh, that that I wouldn't mind me uh, including is um, is a bit more focus on uh, on on Christianity and religion from. From from like uh, a grassroots perspective, if you get my meaning, like mm, because it's it's yeah. a lot to do with the church and the state and and monastic orders and and, and like the big powers and movers and shakers. Yeah. But but what does the average guy on the street exactly, think about the exactly. religion? Exactly. Well, uh, and especially since you do did have uh, a, a lot of of like basically folklore that that turned into kind of christianity and not, not only from paganism and i'm gonna come back to that a bit later but but for instance one of my my favorite saints is um also perhaps the only at least one of the few animal saints and that is the french <laughs> folk saint of saint guinefort um which is um or, or was rather um a dog and according to to the story um, he was owned by usually a, a knight or um, uh, or a baron or, or something like that. And uh, <clears throat> the, the baron is, uh, is going out hunting and leaving uh, his faithful uh, watchhound to, to guard his, uh, his infant child. Uh, but when he comes back, uh, he, uh, he notices that uh, the, the house is uh, basically turned upside down and there's blood everywhere and the the crib uh for for the child is is upside down and and the child can't be seen anywhere and then the the faithful dog uh comes back with um covered in blood and of course the the knight thinks that the dog has killed his child so in in anger he he kills um uh, the dog uh but then it uh, uh then then he um it turns out that um, that the child had been attacked by usually wolves or foxes or something like that, or, or quite often as well, um, quite symbolically, a serpent. Uh, and mm. uh, <laughs> and the child is safe uh, under uh, hidden underneath the crib. Uh, and so, um, realizing his error, the, the knight builds a shrine to his faithful hound, which then becomes the the saint and. Uh, and and of course it's it's a martyred saint which is uh, especially important in in Christianity that 
that if you want to be really holy, you have to get killed. Uh, so so that that is something that I would really like to to include a bit more stuff like that. Uh, I like. Yeah. Um, I I also like when they mentioned the. Uh, what she called the the uh, Presper John, the the story of the uh, faraway yeah. Christian kingdom that is uh, bigger and better than anything in Europe, and it's coming to help uh, Christianity against the uh, the Saracens in the Holy Land. Um, because I'm I'm thinking that this could be a really good. Um, like uh, as a story seed, if if you want to go explore, uh, perhaps down in Africa, perhaps in in India, like you mentioned, or or even back in China, that it it could be um, a, a, the the origin of the story at least could be that a Christian vampire uh, way before um, this time, like perhaps even early on in Christianity, like maybe even before it was legalized in Rome. Just headed off out somewhere uh, and and founded its own small uh, mm. kingdom um, or princedom, <laughs> likely if it's a vampire somewhere. And then jum- rumor has just spread with with explorers uh, or or um, um, emissaries being sent back um, from from that and and that how uh, the the story of of Presbyter John is uh, originated. Uh, so yeah. so they they include that. Um, I, I knew about it before because I, I like uh, finding out weird stuff about religion and other stuff, but uh, it's probably not something that most people have heard of. Uh, were, were you no, familiar it's, it's, with the story? I I knew it. Um, I, I knew the basics uh, of it, but it's not really a belief that is uh, that's you know exists anymore because the whole world has been mapped but it was this idea of uh, the perfect christian holy mm. land existing somewhere outside uh, the borders of civilization yeah. um, and and i i love that they included this and uh, as well the um the legend of uh, the wandering uh, the wandering jew yeah. uh, like these these ideas these um almost superstitions that exist within the the catholic church and within the folk belief of the people uh, the christian uh, people um there is there's a section on life in the church where they look at uh, monastic and military yeah. orders the section on monasteries that just gives a short history on monasteries which from what i know of the monasteries is quite accurate and thankfully does not add even more vampires to the monasteries there's 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 not oh and by the way yeah. this uh, clan also lives yeah, in monasteries yeah. um the section on militant orders is a bit odd uh, since it tells you to go to chapter six for more information on well militant orders and then it spends the rest of the paragraph talking about the sicari or red monks who are sort of the pope's secret police yeah. I don't know if the writers stumbled across some really weird conspiracy theory stuff during their research or if they made this up specifically for the world of darkness. From what I've been able to find, the Sicarii, not Sicari, were a group of extreme Jewish zealots who would commit both assassination and daylight murder during the Roman occupation of Palestine more than a thousand years before this is set now, the idea of the papacy having an order of monks that serves as a secret police is very world of darkness, so I have nothing against mm, uh, yeah. it, but it seems to have little basis in real-world history other than a tenuous link to the Sicarii. Yeah, uh, the, the, so, the word Sicari means dagger, so that's that's where that yeah. comes from. Uh, but Yeah, the dagger yeah, men. Yeah, and, and I 
completely agree with that it feels very well of darkness and because of course the pope has his own secret uh, assassin organization i I'm, I'm just thinking about the 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 sicari also known as red monks for its members customary garb and how how are you supposed to be a secret organization if you have a, a red uniform uh, it's <laughs> well nobody knows that they're the uh, secret police they just see them as red monks yeah but but possibly yeah but still it, yeah but it's it's a very uh, like none of the other red is a very distinct color and it's also the color of cardinals in in the catholic church so it's mm. uh, yeah I, I see what you're going for because red of course uh, evokes the image of blood, blood yeah, yeah so but yeah Perhaps add something else that just a red belt or whatever. But mm. um. Yeah. Um, after that, we take a look at heresies, an important part of Europe at the time. Specifically, we get some information on Manichaeism, Albigensis, a.k.a. Cathars, and Waldenses. It's all good stuff in my opinion, but a bit short, and I would really like to have some information on how vampires interact with these heresies yeah. as they represent both influence, temporal and spiritual, and, for, and a way for vampires to sway religious opinions, which can be very important for them. Um, do you have anything heretical to say? Oh, do I ever. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but I think we're still a PG podcast, so no, uh, jokes aside... I, uh, I I am on the side on your side with this that uh, it it would be nice to include more on on how it um, uh, on how it actually interferes with with the unlives of vampires uh, because especially the uh, the Cathars they weren't just a, a small sect that that popped out and and then oh, they no. disappeared they they were around for hundreds of years and and they were. Um, well, I wouldn't say accepted since they were uh, they were heretics in that way, but it's it's still you could be a Cathar living uh, your your everyday life with other Cathars in your village, not having to worry about uh, crusaders coming and burning you down, um, because the lord of of the castle was also a Cathar and he had enough soldiers to keep everyone else at bay. Uh, and and of course you would also have this quite interesting uh, interaction between different kind of cathars because you would still kind of trade with with between the different cathars and catholics and stuff like that because uh, if it, it it wasn't bad enough that that the church would want to destroy them immediately and and if nothing else they they were popular and accepted enough to actually. Uh, achieve this amount of power to be able to have their own province, basically, uh, and and <coughs> to be able to do that, you need to be able to trade and and marry other people and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, just just add a bit more and uh, a bit more on how it uh, affects um, other uh, places and and people. Mm. Um, yeah, and then. Um... Next section, I did not expect this. It's the Inquisition. Did you expect it? Well, I, I expected it since it wasn't the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, ah, okay. So. <laughs> it's actually a very short mm. section, and it nicely spells out that in 1197, there isn't much of an organized and centralized Inquisition. Uh, that comes later, as the Papal Inquisition isn't really established until 1231. Yeah. Uh, at this point, it's... it's um, really more in the hands of the bishops and the archbishops. 
Uh, we also get a bit more about true faith, specifically holy ground and the possibility of miracles, which I like because I'm in favor of, of faith having mm. a detrimental effect on yeah. vampires. And then we end with the legends that we've already covered and then some sections on magic in the church. And my only comment here is that fortunately we don't get uh, any stuff from other games intruding here. There's just a quick mention of Mage the Ascension. Yeah, yeah I... Uh... Yeah, I'm going to apologize for uh, for mispronouncing. Prester John is is the name of the ruler of the uh, fabled uh, uh, Christian kingdom. Uh, I, I they mentioned Pope Joan, which is the story about uh, a woman supposed yeah. to have become pope, but there really isn't any kind of of basis for that. Uh, but again, if you want to include it as uh, as a myth in your uh, campaign, or uh, in, perhaps in in your world of darkness, there was a female pope. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I I probably wouldn't though. Um, as no. as when it comes to magic in the church, um, I I like the fact that they different between uh, sanctioned magic basically basically and and uh, bad magic. Uh, but what what it would be, uh, or if I would include it as anything else than than just basic mortal alchemy, I I'm not sure yet. Uh, so, but no. but I I like the fact that they at least included that that they uh, kind of dropped the hints that hey, this is something that you could use if you wanted to. Mm. So the next part of this chapter is called The Moors and talk about the Muslims in Al-Andalus or what is today Spain. This is somewhat Europe-centric, but the game has been pretty narrow in scope from the mm. start. So I don't have a problem with this. Uh, what do you have to say about this section? Uh, I, uh, I, I would probably want a bit more of it. I, I do like the fact that it's all things considered, it's, uh, it's quite respectful and, and it doesn't paint the... Uh, the Moors as these foreign invaders and stuff like that, and and the fact that they actually have a, a small uh, like fact note about the difference between Moors and Berbers uh, mm, because yeah. they are, are in some ways different people, uh, and and they mention yeah they from from my understanding they they do a pretty good job of of covering uh, basically the what it was down in the um, Iberian Peninsula in Spain and Portugal at the time. Uh, so, yeah, uh, if, if you're uh, going to set your game there or, or have vampires from that area, uh, it's I find it quite useful. Yeah. Um, the thing is, um, it doesn't really give any information about Islam, so I'm wondering why it's set in the section called Matters of Faith, uh, because after reading this, you don't really get any idea of how islam works uh so so you know it's it's a bit i i mean as as a primer on um the the islamic uh, part of spain it's quite good but but if you were hoping to learn a bit more about islam it's it's not that useful but like you said if you want to set a a setting there it gives you a lot of good information and you can always do some more research uh, yourself yeah I, I actually didn't even think about that because uh being being a European and a Scandinavian, we we've been taught uh, a bit about Islam in in schools. So mm. uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's actually a very good point that you bring up. 
So uh, we end on a very nice section on paganism and the various non-Christian beliefs of Europe. I'm not that knowledgeable about any other pagan beliefs than Asotro, uh, the old religion of the Vikings. And that part is okay. Um, you know, the, there are some things where I was thinking, ah, oh, that, that doesn't really 100% gel with what I know. But, but as an overall introduction, I think it, it works. Mm. In general, like the section on the Moors, uh, it, it, it's maybe a bit superficial, but the final part of the section, which concerns paganism uh, and canines, as well as pagan true faith magic and relics, relics that has some really interesting ideas, I think. Yeah, uh, I, I, I like the chapter overall, uh, I, and I briefly touched on it, the, the kind of folk worship of Christianity, and, and they do have a section on how basically pagan worship that the, the fire goddess Bridget turns into Saint Bridget. Uh, for for example, um, and, uh, and 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 stuff like that, uh, which which I really like. Uh, and as you mentioned, when it comes to to the Asa true, uh, they they did a really uh, okay job of that. Um, and uh, what, what I like in in general uh, or find interesting in general is that uh, it, it's. A lot of these stories uh, stuck, stuck around for, for quite some while, even after the, uh, Sweden and, and Scandinavia was, was Christianized. And, and you had this basically tradition of, of um, not, not only did, did you worship usually both, uh, both the, the pagan gods and, and Christ. And there's, there's yeah. actually, I, I can't remember if it's Adam from Bremen or, or one of the other people who goes to, uh, to, to Uppsala in Sweden. And they mentioned that, uh, that yeah, even though the, the uh, Swedes have converted to, to uh, Christianity, they, they still sacrifice stuff to, to the new white Christ as, as happily as they did to the old pagan gods, even though you're not supposed to sacrifice animals and even people to hmm. to Christ. I think that might have been, I think that might have been Enska. Yeah, I'm not but, yeah, sure. uh, can't remember at the moment. But but that you have this this kind of not necessarily that you, that you still worship the ancient gods as as they uh, as time passed, but that you still kind of had the and uh, that that they were still around in folklore, and they were even like up into the uh, 17 and 1800s in Sweden, you have stories uh, about uh, woodsmen running around or, or going out in the, the forest and encountering uh, Odin on on his eight-legged uh, horse uh, out, out mm. hunting. And what I really like about this is that it modernized the story so that that Odin is out hunting uh, with some kind of musket or firearm, uh, which which I think is kind of cool that he he updates his weaponry as time times goes past. But <laughs> but again, the, yeah. the the fact that they talk about um, Odin as as something it you don't have to explain him. It's just that oh, Odin, the old pagan god, uh, because everyone knows about him and it makes sense that he's uh, running around. Uh, quite often, he's he's hunting uh, fake creatures like uh, for the. Uh, in in Sweden we have the the skogsroa the the forest group yeah, yeah. Uh, which is uh, often described as uh, the front part of her is is a beautiful woman woman but when she turns around 
uh, her uh, her back is described either as a hollow log or covered in bark and leaves. Um, yeah, and she has a cow's tail. Yeah, stuff like that. There, there are different uh, versions. Uh, and for some reason, Odin seems to like to hunt her. Uh, but but uh, yeah, I, I would perhaps like to see a bit more of that as well. Uh, but it's probably not something that uh, American researchers would have an easy time finding. So uh, so I, I understand why it's, uh, it's not there, so to speak. Um, yeah, uh, they also, I mean, when when they talk about pagan uh, belief still being practiced in secret, it seems to me to be more of a of a um, a world of darkness mm-hmm. thing. Where I would say it makes sense that that pagan beliefs still hang on, especially encouraged by by vampires. I don't think in 1197, especially in in places that have been Christianized for a long time, that you would still have that much belief. But it makes sense in in the world of darkness. Uh, they also talk a bit about um, witch cults, mm. and uh, obviously in 1197 or in general in the Middle Ages, the um, the Catholic Church their position was that uh, witchcraft didn't exist. It was it was a heresy yeah. to actually believe in in the existence of witchcraft. It was only when Protestantism came on the rise that witchcraft sort of became. A thing, but once again, we're dealing with the world of darkness, and it makes sense to have witch cults there. Yeah, and speaking of witches, um, am I correct in the assumption that this is the first time that they mention uh, Baba Yaga? Uh, and I'm not a hundred percent sure, but it might be. I thought about that as well, but I didn't. I didn't do any research, but yeah, it might be the yeah. first time they mentioned Baba Yaga. And, and isn't it also a running joke that that basically everyone claims that Baba Yaga belongs to their clan or? Uh, no, that is Rasputin. Rasputin. Oh yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Uh, that is that is a bit yeah, later. Uh, but but here they mention Baba Yaga and, and being a. a, a ancient Nosferatu, which, uh, yeah, kind yeah. of makes sense. Uh, but, mm. uh, yeah. So we come to chapter six called Dark Medieval Europe. It starts with some thoughts on where vampires can make their havens and the difficulty it presents, whether it be in towns, in the wilderness, in monasteries, again, mm. <laughs> in uh, in cities or on the road. Once again, it feels like some of this repeats information from Three Pillars, but it's nice stuff to have for a chronicle. I really like that they finally acknowledge that even a city of 9,000 people is a rare thing in Europe. However, they also say that cities have a 9 o'clock curfew, which is true of some cities, but it really depends on the time of year, uh, where the city is located, and also port cities are likely to have at least the docks open for longer, if not uh, through the night yeah, uh, I, I agree with that, and that was also something that I was going to uh, to mention. Um, but it's what what I like about that part is is that they kind of point out the the difficulty of uh, for vampires being out and about and uh, and not uh, and and just finding people to to feed on or stuff to do, um, especially if if you want to go hiding in the shadows because. Uh, in in some cities, especially later on, it was actually a rule that uh, you you had to carry a lantern if you were out after after dark, um, and and there had to be a lantern and not like a torch or an open flame because then you could easily set fire mm. to the uh, to the city. But but also basically as a way to show that you didn't have any 
um, in a criminal in, intent because if you're carrying a lantern, you can easily be seen. Um, yeah. So and and kind of the opposite. If you don't carry a lantern, it could be seen uh, that you had the intent of of committing a crime, and it could be um, an arrestable offense in in some situations. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I do like the fact that they point out the, the difficulty of moving around, but also, as you mentioned, uh, in, in certain places um, and, and in certain towns, especially poor towns, you would have uh, activities uh, all day or, or all, all hours of the day and night. Uh, and of course, down in the, uh, in, in the Mediterranean areas, it could often be too hot during the daytime to to conduct any kind of business so you would have yeah. to do it at night um. mm. uh, and they also rather unfortunately in the life on the road section mm. uh once again make mention of gypsies and then gypsy caravans which i think we've we've ex- explained a number of times weren't a thing in 1197 yeah. because the the romani people hadn't gotten to europe by that mm. point so um we then move on to knightly orders, and I like that they spend most of the word count on the relatively unknown Knights of St. Lazarus, or Leper Knights, yeah. uh, who they give a strong connection to the Nosferatu, uh, makes sense. They also give some information on the Templars, where they start with saying that the supposed that the Templars supposedly dabble in magic, Satanism, and other less-than-Christian pursuits. Now, as I mentioned, these were charges made against the Templars when they were uh, disbanded, uh, and in the world of darkness, they could be true, but in 1197, nobody suspects the yeah. Templars of such a thing. There's no charges or, or rumors against them. Uh, they were just a very well-renowned order of knights. Yeah. They do mention that the Templars acted as bankers as well as being soldiers, which is nice because that is one of the very important things that they did, especially after the loss of the Holy Land. That's kind of what got them into trouble. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, that, the, I, was, I was just going to say that the, the reason that, that the Knight Templars was, uh, were accused of heresy was because that basically the, the King of France owed him a bunch of money. And it's, it's a lot easier to... Uh, well, not necessarily easier, but if if you kill the person that that you owe money to, you don't have to pay him back. Um, so uh, yeah, exactly. But, but, so the the king of France tried to get out of his yeah. uh, his fiscal responsibilities yeah. by accusing the Templars of of yeah, heresy. And, uh, exactly, and and see, and and again, the the reason uh, why he or one of the reasons why he accused them of heresy was that because uh, if you accuse them of heresy, you can seize their lands and their assets. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, and, and I also, I'm, I'm just going to men- mention about the leper knights that that they kind of give the uh, impression that that these these knights actually had leprosy, all of them, which would at least after a while make them very poor knights. Uh, in mm. in the real world, the reasons that they were called uh, leper knights or uh, was that they uh, they started out as a monastic order. Uh, Dealing who who um, who had so-called leper uh, leper houses, which were yeah. um, places where where people with leprosy could live out their dying days, uh, and mm. yeah, probably a few of them caught leprosy. Uh, and in the world of darkness, it is kind of cool to have uh, an order of of leprous knights uh, on the back. They they mentioned that the Nosferatu uh, give blood to the knights that have leprosy so that they yeah. can hold out longer. But yeah, in in the real world, it would be most of the knights not having leprosy, but if any knight caught 
leprosy, it would make sense for that knight to then join the leper yeah. knights. Uh, and uh, and if you again, if you want to do the whole world of darkness thing, it it would be really cool to uh, to make it a bit more connected to the Nosferatu and, and them actually yeah. uh, the, the knights actually having. Um, leprosy just because that's that's icky but cool at the same time um yeah um so the other two big orders the hospitalers and the teutonic order they get very short paragraphs that don't really explain much especially the teutonics i almost feel like they 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 shouldn't have bothered it's just more or less mentioning that they exist and that the hospitalers have some issues with the templars over who gets to be the big shots in uh in the um, in the Crusader states, yeah. uh, fun fact actually, in the uh, Fall of Acre game that I'm running, where where it takes place in the Crusader states, two of the players uh, are playing characters that are members of uh, these orders. We have one who is uh, the that's the um, Warrior Salubri. He was a leper knight who had leprosy in life, and uh, my wife is playing a Nosferatu who was a Teutonic, not knight, but a soldier, uh, commoner mm-hmm. before embrace so uh, so we have connections to these orders uh, in the game that i'm playing which is is kind of cool because it does give a lot of of really fun uh, options for them to have influence and uh, yeah. people to interact yeah, with especially later on because uh, i was going to bring up the teutonic knights and uh, they they really missed an opportunity not not expanding on them because they were, in some ways, they were probably the most successful of these knightly orders because oh, they, yes. they basically, oh, yes. the, 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 the Teutonic state or the order of the Teutonic state was basically a country up uh, at the Baltic Sea, uh, parts of it, which is now yeah. in Prussia and, and uh, the Baltic states of um, uh, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania. Uh, and yeah. not really at this moment, but again after the fall of, of um, uh, the Crusader states down in. Uh, well, not actually, not even after the fall. They started getting out of the Crusader states somewhere around the middle of the 13th century yeah. because they realized that things yeah, were going exactly, bad down exactly. there. And, and they become, <laughs> uh, uh, um, well, not a secular power, but but a worldly power. Uh, uh, and a huge power player up at uh, uh, in in the Baltic area. Uh, because, like I mentioned, they uh, they they conquered a very large area of land that they controlled, uh, mm. and they they also, interestingly enough, they uh, were early adapter uh, adapters of of firearms and cannon, uh, and mm. one and and especially in the thirteen uh, hundreds, uh, the power waned a bit then in in the fourteen hundreds, but. Um, in in the late 1390s, uh, they actually conquered the the island of Gotland, which was uh, at the time somewhat of, of a pirate haven, or you, you had a, a Victual Brotherhood. Yeah, the Victual um, Brothers, who who were based uh, at least partially on on Gotland, and they held the island for, uh, and especially the city of Visby, which was a Hanseatic city. So they was kind of a, a deal with them uh, but they held the island for I think it was something like 10 or 15 years uh, and and I must say that it, it seems to have been uh, one of the most successful military occupations at least that I've ever heard of uh, at least from the point of view of the people being occupied 
because <laughs> the reason that that the Teutonic Order left the island uh, wasn't because they, that they weren't welcome, but it, it wasn't financially justifiable to uh, to keep the island uh, because they had to fight pirates and they had to to fight other criminals and and keep the order. Um, but but the traders of the island loved them and and uh, they actually asked them to stay longer. Uh, and yeah, uh, <laughs> a bunch of a bunch of armed knights knights are going to bring some. Yeah, stability. exactly. It's, and it's it's really good, especially since you don't have to pay them yourself. So it's it's really good for for commerce to have this uh, this order to to keep away the pirates. And I don't think I've ever heard of any other situations where the people being occupied actually ask the the occupiers to stay longer and and the <laughs> occupiers are just saying that no no we're gonna get out of here we you don't you don't pay us enough literally uh, so, <laughs> to occupy so, yeah uh, but we will uh, we will get into the teutonic order a lot more when we get to the book called under the black cross oh, yeah. uh where where they play quite a big mm. part um yeah so after the uh, knightly orders, we move on to Judaism, which for some reason is not in the chapter on matters of faith. Mm. What did you think of this section on, on Jews and Judaism? Uh, well, I think the the best part of this, it was that they included a warning that, that Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism is, is still quite a thing. Uh, and it, it's mm. still something that people do today. So, so you probably shouldn't... Uh, first of all, they mentioned that this is just a, a brief overview of, of Kabbalah of yeah. the time period, uh, and and so that you you shouldn't be uh, well, you shouldn't be disrespectful at all. But but just keep that in mind that this is something that is is very much um, alive and and practiced today. Uh, but but o- overall, uh, I I uh, think it was. Uh, Nicely written, uh, especially since uh, Golems um, is uh, is one of my favorite. Uh, like, yeah, m- I love streets. the inclusion of the Golem. Yeah. I really do. Uh, uh, though we should probably mention the original legend of the Golem is from the 16th yeah, century, but yeah, still, but still uh, uh, Golems are fun. Yeah, and and if uh, and I, I especially like him as a storytelling device that uh, Terry Pratchett uses in his book Feet of Clay. Uh, which yeah, I was thinking is, the same is thing. a very nice uh, piece on on the concept of, of free will uh, in in general. But but yeah, I, I do mm. like the fact that they include them, and I, I do also like the fact that they uh, for for those who don't know that the golem is is supposed to be a clay automaton, uh, which uh, in his either kept in his head uh, or written at his forehead has has. Uh, um, the magic word of life, uh, and uh, and that is what gives it life and, and controls it. Uh, and so they mentioned that if you fight a golem, you're probably gonna lose because they are more or less indestructible. And that if your players just like, oh, I'm just gonna run up and and erase the the writing on the forehead, uh, then you would, as the storyteller asked. How the hell would you, as a player character, know that? Because that's that's yeah, not something. Un- unless that you are actually, yeah, unless the character is actually mm. Jewish, uh, they they probably wouldn't know yeah, this. Exactly. Um, I I I really like this section. The start of the section kind of stereotypes the Jews as money lenders. I get that that it's important to mention 
uh, that some Jews were moneylenders, that this really affected the way Jews were looked at. But it, it's more, it seems like they're, they're saying that most Jews are moneylenders, yeah. which they were not. Uh, it's nice that they mentioned that the Star of David was not the symbol of Judaism at, at this time. Uh, that's something that comes in later. At this point, it's the menorah, mm. uh, the, um, the, the candelabra. Yeah. Uh, it's overall a good section. I think they could do a bit more to show what it was actually like to be a Jew in Middle Ages Europe. Um, I mean, just to uh, show that the, some places Jews were very well integrated. In other places, they were constantly fearing uh, pogroms, but it, it's a good section. Yeah. Um, we end this chapter with a surprisingly long section of fairies. Mm. Uh, which fortunately doesn't mention anything about Changeling the Dreaming, which is nice. It's not like, oh, here's uh, something about fairies, but you need Changeling the Dreaming book to use them. Uh, It's fairly Celtic-centric, I feel, though it does mention some creatures from other cultures. It also does a good uh, showing of medieval folk beliefs about fairies. Um, I I felt like it could have included some uh, rule stuff. Uh, It didn't need to be much, but just enough to where a storyteller could portray the Fae using uh, the vampire, the Dark Ages rules. But what uh, what did you think about the Fae chapter? Or yeah, I, I, I agree with uh, with what you said, that it, it could be useful to, to have some kind of rules for them. I, I do like that it gives you the option to... Uh, that, that it's not just, oh, these are the Fae from, from uh, Vampire, uh, whatever, Changeling Dark Ages... Uh, that that you could actually keep Vampire the Dark Ages its own separate game world, but you could still have these other supernatural creatures that that are their own thing. Uh, be, because I feel that if you if the text says that oh these are the the Black Talon werewolves, then you kind of have to include the entire concept of of werewolf yeah. in it. But in in this way they make it uh, a, a bit more. Not generic, but uh, a, a bit more, more um, uh, w- well, uh, <laughs> not realistic either because they aren't, they aren't, they aren't real. Uh, but it, more connected to to medieval folklore and and beliefs that that these are just the uh, the people living under the bridges or under the the rocks in in the forest. Um, I'm I'm just going to mention that. Uh, on on the section of elves or alfad as they're they're called here, uh, which are the kind of Norse version of of the mm, Sid. Yeah. Uh, they they talk about the light elves or um, or Leos Alpha as as it's pronounced. It's it's supposed to be use use Alver uh, in in some kind or in in Danish uh, Yeah, and but but the spelling. <laughs> The the, the 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 way they spell the word doesn't really connect in in any way to how it's supposed to be pronounced. So so that's that's just a nitpick because if if I didn't know what they were talking about, I wouldn't make the assumption that oh that's supposed to be pronounced use or in your case loose. It's probably the the lios alpha. What what the hell is a lios alpha? It, it yeah, it's just weird from for me as a mm. as a Scandinavian. Uh, yeah. but, but you know I, I like that they introduce um, Faye just because when you look at the uh, the folk belief in Europe uh, the, the various types of Faye creatures play a huge role so I think it's important that, that they're in there to show what people 
uh, believed in the Middle Ages. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. And and that the, there are so many different kinds of them, and, and not only fairies, but or, or not, not only uh, elves, but, but also <coughs> kind of fairies, and that they have the uh, the cottage fairies, or or what we would call most often house gnomes or or house tomtar. Uh, the, the kind of small creatures that would live in your house and that you would uh, put out the porridge uh, for uh, during Christmas time and and uh, sometimes yeah. you would make new outfits for them to uh, to say thank you uh, and and the the kind of kind of like not not spirits in in the undead sense but um, yeah the, the spirit or fey beings that you would want to. Uh, to be on good terms with, otherwise your crops would fail or your cows would uh, run out of milk and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, yeah, the, the it, it's it's a good section uh, for for stuff in general uh, and and not necessarily use useful straight off just to lift it in from the pages of the book into your campaign, but it gives a lot of ideas on how you could use it uh, either just as as plain superstition that this is what the people believed in or if you want to include more uh, more of a, a supernatural elements uh, in in your games that isn't necessarily from uh, another line of, of white wolf uh, games yeah um so the last chapter is chapter seven infernalism mm. and i love this i i have a liking for including infernalists demons and demon worshippers as antagonists in my games and i like the idea of showing the characters and their players that um in this game hell is real it also gives them something to worry about since the demons and the powers of hell are varied and often unknowable and it's always fun if a player tries to have their character strike deals. Um, what's your take on infernalism and demons in a Dark Ages vampire game? Well, I'm uh, I'm kind of split because it it kind of depends on on what what you want your game and your game world to be about. Because in in one hand, like you mentioned, that that the fact that that hell and demons and and infernal powers are real and can be quite cinematic and scary and, and set the tone for um, a, an entire game. But on the other hand, it, it goes back to the fact that this kind of makes it very Eurocentric and and it, it means be, because Christianity is a religion that basically says that we are the only religion that is true. Yeah. And, and yeah, of course, yeah. the whole concept of, of vampires are, are based on, on Christian mythology, so it, you kind of have to include that in some way. But uh, it, it kind of makes... It, it, if, if you want to have a game that includes, for instance, Hindu vampires, which I see no reason why you couldn't, you, you then have to decide that, okay, are, are there gods and and afterlife or they don't reincarnation stuff is is that also real is uh, yeah. is nothing real i what, what the problem uh, that i have with infernalism i'm going to put it like that uh, because i i don't necessarily dislike it but I, I see it as somewhat problematic is that it it kind of defines uh, the the world and it takes away a bit of mystery because it it gives a definitive answer to the question, that much is, is true, there yes. a heaven and a hell? And and 
And that answer, if you include infernalism in this way, is yes. Both heaven and hell uh, are real. And and so why would you then not be a good Christian? Why would you actually not not uh, embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Uh, and and yeah. it takes away agency from from non-Christian characters. But but it, that is yeah, true. But, but infernalism, as it's portrayed uh, in uh, with, with the rules and the kind of um, the the uh, the pacts and and the consequences and everything like that. Yeah, I, I really like that, those parts of this chapter. Uh, yeah, um, I mean, I think possibly one of the things that I'm I'm colored by is uh, I've mentioned this before uh, the fact that I played Os Magica mm, yeah. uh, before getting into to Dark Ages and and infernalism was a, a very big part of that and Os Magica was always well what people in Europe uh, believed in the Middle Ages is, yeah. is true. Uh, but I, I really agree with you in that if you do include this as a hard fact, you're going to have to consider how this impacts other belief systems. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, um, this chapter has uh, a lot of, of really great information about the various Cainites' takes on, take on infernalism. And as you mentioned, it has rules on making demonic pacts and selling your soul, uh, which is always fun if... if characters get yeah. into that and we also get stats for various demons um and i love using them as as antagonists as yeah. i've mentioned before because they really uh they they have the option of being something where uh, players can't just say ah but that is quite clearly a la sombra with these disciplines yeah. or uh, a whatever it's they're demons and they're they're very varied and can do things that might break the rules yeah um so, uh, anything else you want to add about this chapter? Uh, no, not, nothing in particular. I do like the fact that they, they have a section on um, on on how different clans uh, or clan members would turn to infernalism. And and what I really like is that if if you the kind of overarching theme is that they basically say that no, there there is really no reason for any of the clans. To become infernalist because it's it's gonna fuck them up, uh, and and yeah. for example the the Sethites more or less already have their version of it, and and so but uh, so it's it's kind of a, a a warning that yeah you should probably stay away from it but as we all know if 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 there's a sign that says don't touch people are going to touch it so uh, <laughs> oh so, yes so it's, do it's, not it's press nice, this button it's a nice touch uh, to to include that is uh, that uh, there there are very good reasons for for all of the clans to stay very far away from infernalism. But at the same time, if you do, you can become really, really powerful. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, there's always going to be some uh, players who, uh, who are trying to ice skate yeah. uphill. Um, we end with an appendix with stats for animals. Um, I feel like we already had a bestiary of animals in a book, but I can't remember if that's right. Um, I think we do. I don't know if it's as long as this one, but uh, it's yeah. It, there are some very basic um, stuff, uh, just some basic animals, uh, cats, uh, horses, and <coughs> war horses. And I do like the fact that they make a difference between the two. Uh, I do like the fact that they include European lions uh, because yeah, they were uh, even though at this point they. They had been pretty much. Yeah, I think so. But if if you read a lot of, of uh, Greek mythology, you have lions running around all over that part of the world. Uh, 
So yeah, and they tend to crop up a lot in Arthurian and uh, Charlemagnean um, yeah, okay. epic yeah. literature, where it was like, okay, uh, the lions are still here. So you can you can say that okay they weren't hunted to extinction uh, in the world yeah, of exactly. darkness because there were vampires who prevented it or something like that. Yeah, or or um, you can just e- even if they were, what if uh, uh, some very old vampire has uh, a ghoul lion and people? Yeah. Th- because in some way that that could be almost more um, uh, more more legendary and and. Uh, mythological to have because well everyone knows that vampire especially if you're a vampire yourself then then you know that vampires are real but if you meet mm. uh, if, if you meet an an actual lion that you thought were just uh, uh, an animal of, of legend uh, then it's it could <laughs> could probably turn your head in quite a way quite ways yeah um this this appendix isn't that long i think it's like two or three mm. pages it does have some weird stats for example a bat is as strong as a deer, while a swan is stronger than both. It's as strong as your average human. And a human can literally be as strong as a bear because the bear only has a strength of yeah. five. Uh, so that's some weird things. Also, a horse has a stamina of three and a war horse has a stamina of five, which is all kinds of wrong since horses are generally not as enduring as humans and they're prone to serious injury if you're not careful. Yeah. You can run a horse for a long time, sure, but you ruin or even kill it if you do. Yeah, I, I think that mostly has to do with uh, with health and uh, and and being able to soak up damage because. The, yeah, exactly. It takes quite a lot to uh, to to kill a horse, which is why they were used for war, warfare, uh, yeah. even up in. Though it doesn't take much to lame them, actually. Yeah, no, if, if you hit them in the right spot, uh, and in, yeah, incidentally, if a... we go back to the combat section, there is. Uh, th- there is uh, maneuvers to to hamstring or or cripple uh, yeah. stuff. So so yeah, just as, as a note for that, uh, one of the main reasons that that people used horses for travel wasn't necessarily because they were uh, quicker or could go for longer than than humans, but they could carry a lot of stuff. Uh, with plus, if you rode a horse, it, it was the horse yeah, exactly. that got tired, not you. Uh, so even if you're gonna your your buttocks are probably gonna be sore after a while, uh, <laughs> because yeah, because riding sores is a thing. But but yeah, I, I agree with with the fact that some of the stats are are kind of weird. But I think it's just that you kind of have to have um, a, a strength of at least one to be able to bite something. Uh, and yeah. then swans swans can be really vicious actually. Uh, they so, can but, yes, but, but yeah. I would still say that that I I would win an arm wrestling competition with a swan. Yeah, but it could probably peck your eyes out if if you're true. So so again, I, I think I'd be more scared of a goose though. Yeah, probably. Uh, but <laughs> I I think it's just a, a, um, a case of separation of of storytelling and and uh, rules yeah. in this case. Uh, yeah, you shouldn't take it too serious, yeah, really. Uh, so now, now we want an army of of ghoul geese or ghoul swans. Yeah, uh, yeah. Ah. Uh, peace was yeah, never an option. Exactly. Uh, so, but <laughs> okay. yeah, I, I think that was that was that for for the animal section of this book. Yeah. So evaluation of this book, uh, I really like it. 
I'm glad I reread it. The historical information is generally spot on, and as mentioned, I love the infernalism stuff. The bloodlines could have been fleshed out some more, but all in all, it's a good book. Um, however, a lot of the setting information and rule stuff gets replaced by later books, so I would say that this is only a book for a completionist or people playing first edition Dark Ages. Also, I feel it's somewhat superficial in places, and in later chapters, there's some stuff that seems to be in the wrong chapters. Uh, but what is your verdict on on this yeah, book? I, uh, like if if I was on a budget and I only could buy a few books, then this would probably be one of the books that I would buy because it covers a lot of different subjects and it's it's quite useful in in that way. Uh, like you mentioned, a lot of of the rules, the actual rules, uh, are are made obsolete in later books. But then again, if you don't afford uh, to buy 13 different clan books, then then perhaps this would be <laughs> enough. Um, you, yeah, you already mentioned that there, the brevity on some of the uh, topics uh, is a bit annoying, especially for me, uh, that, who knows a bit more of it than I would like to spread the knowledge to other people. Uh, but then again, they can listen to our podcast. Yay! Um, I'm, mm, I'm just woo. I'm just flipping through the pages and looking at at stuff if to see if I missed anything. And on, on page 186, I'm just being confused by the infernal lady who seems to have um, uh, an army of, of ghouled monkeys for some reason. And I'm, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out what, what purpose that served and where she found them. But that's, that's just... Uh, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking she's from Gibraltar. Oh, yeah, that, that could make sense. Yeah, those, those monkeys are, are <laughs> vicious. I was actually robbed by one once. And... And, yeah, and it, I remember yeah, you telling and, me and about that. And I'm going to save that story for perhaps for the question and answer. <laughs> Someone wants to know, <laughs> wants to hear about it. But yeah, no, no. Uh, back on topic. Uh, yeah, it's it's a good book. The the historical uh, inaccuracies aren't really that annoying, like with the curfews and and carrying people around on your lances and stuff. Um, the the combat section, uh, even for for a non combat focused game, I think was was really nice if nothing else just to point out that you can do other things besides just hacking and slashing uh, and having a signature style for uh, both for your player and for your especially for your antagonist uh, is is a really cool thing to do so uh, so yeah i i liked it uh, i as i yeah. said um, if if these if i only could buy a few books this would probably be one of them Right, so next week there's a side quests, and the next book we're looking at is Libellus Sanguinis One, Masters of the State. Any last words from you, Peter? Uh, nothing on this, but again, I would like to remind people that we are doing a bit of a Q&A uh, session for our 10th episode, so if you would like to contribute to that or ask us uh, anything about games or uh, history or uh, about yourselves, uh, please just submit the questions to the email address that will be post posted on Facebook and probably on the podcast site as well, and uh, or or just ask us on Facebook and we'll we'll do our best to answer uh, anything that we <laughs> uh, anything that we think that our listeners would like to hear us answer. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I also just want to encourage people to check out our new Discord server. Not a lot happening there, but, you know, 
if more people come there, we might get some interesting discussions on all things Dark Ages. And with that, it is goodbye from me, Jacob. And from me, Peter. Farewell and see you next time. Goodbye.